This week on Cinemaholic, special guest Abby Olchesi joins us as we cast our ballots for Longshot, a brand new political romantic comedy starring Charlize Theron and Seth Rogen. I was questioning, like, do I just not like romantic comedies? Because I feel like they're not doing for me what they should. But that's not all. School is out, but the party is just getting started. We're doing an early review for the upcoming bad teen comedy, Booksmart, the first film directed by Olivia Wilde. This does feel like one of those comedies where I think in a few years, people are going to rewatch this film and be like, oh my gosh, Molly Gordon is in Booksmart. And later in the show, we discuss three new releases on Netflix. All that and more is coming up on Cinemaholics. Welcome once again to Cinemaholics. I am the author of the novel Killer Joy, a book about Pixar called The Pixar Theory, and I write about film. For Adam Tickets, The Young Folks, and Cinemaholics, I am John Negroni. Will Ashton is out this week, but we have a special guest filling in. She is a film critic based in Kansas City. She has bylines for Birth Movies Death, Slash Film.com, Film School Rejects, Relevant, and plenty more. Welcome back to Cinemaholics, Abby Olchesi. Hi, thanks for having me. So great to have you back. Technically, you were on the show for our Tully episode, mm-hmm. which was episode, it was in the 60s, so it was a year ago. And that was an awesome conversation. Great to have you back on. But you were also technically on the show for our top movies of 2018. The listeners could hear your recorded voicemail. So thank you for partaking in that. Yeah, absolutely. That was that was super fun to be part of. Yeah, I think that one was my favorite because we shared the same favorite movie of 2018, which was Eighth Grade, if I have that correct. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Great to have you back on and in earnest and appreciate you filling in for Will Ashton. He, both he and I were out of town this past week. And so our schedules did not align. And so things worked out to have you on. We're going to be talking about a whole lot of great films. We have some off topics to get to, but as always, you can find more episodes of Cinemaholics on adamtickets.com. Our full archive is on cinemaholics.com along with our reviews and bonus episodes, everything you want from the world of Cinemaholics. If you want to send some feedback to the show, our email is cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to become a patron of our show and support us financially, if you have the means, uh, please go to patreon.com slash cinemaholics. And of course, links to everything I just said are in the show notes. Okay, Abby Chessy, we have this special thing called Extra Milestone. Uh, I don't know if you've seen my tweets about it. I understand things get busy and we i i understand if you haven't listened to an episode yet but could i convince you to check out an episode an anniversary episode where sam nolan Milashin, and myself talk about seven samurai some like it hot and it happened one night uh yeah absolutely those are all <laughs> fantastic movies and i would love to hear you talk about them Oh, wow. So it sounds like we're doing an ad, but that's not intentional. Um, (laughs) So if you've never heard of Extra Milestone, it is our special bonus podcast that we do once a month. We celebrate a film anniversary. This most recent episode for April uh, just came out this past week. Uh, These episodes come out earlier, though, if you are a patron. And yes, we talked about Seven Samurai because it came out 65 years ago in April. So that's a super fun episode. I know, right? It it feels like it's only been mm, 55, maybe. But... (laughs) We also have another bonus episode coming out later this week. You might be thinking to yourself, John, Will, special guest Abby Elchessi, I almost said your name wrong. Um, where, where's your review of Under the Silver Lake? I, I don't see it in the show notes. I've been waiting to hear about Under the Silver Lake for years because that's how long it feels like they've been delaying this one. Uh, we actually have a bonus episode coming out later this week for that film, which stars Andrew Garfield. And I don't know, Abby, if this film's even on your radar or if you, do you know anybody who's seen it already and has uh, some opinions on it you found interesting? 
I have exactly one friend who's seen it, uh, your friend and mine, Brock Wilbur. Um, mm-hmm. And he, uh, I believe, likes it um, in kind of an odd, offbeat strange way um mm. but i've also read a lot of reviews kind of on both sides of the coin i've been fascinated right uh by the story of this movie um for a while since it was supposed to come out a long time ago mm. uh and i'm a big fan of david robert mitchell um and i'm very eager to hear what he does does next um it kind of sounds like reports of this are that it kind of maybe uh a24 didn't quite know what to do with it which seems odd since they're such a uh, our tour focused studio, but uh, that it was kind of unfairly yeah. dumped. Um, but either way, I'm very curious to kind of see what all the fuss is about and just kind of find out why it was so hard to um, to sell to people. I couldn't agree more. It is so strange that from the people who brought us, you know, The Lovers, a, a film that I have no idea who I would have marketed that to, they found mm-hmm. a way. Um, but yeah, very strange that they delayed it so long. I've heard unbelievable things about it. It's on video on demand at the moment. So I definitely recommend if you are jazzed about checking out that episode, Will recorded it already with Corey Woodruff. I have not listened to it yet because they do have spoilers. So I'm going to watch the film. And then I'm going to listen to it and we're going to release it later this week. So you may want to rent that $5 on iTunes and probably on a few other services. You might be able to check it out. Uh, I have no idea if this will show up in any red boxes, but if they do, please email us and let us know because uh, that would be fascinating. I was just going to say it's like one red box in like a strange corner of LA that like nobody goes to. <laughs> yes, that would be the, the yes, a red box that is in Hollywood itself or in some sort of alleyway, <laughs> maybe. I don't know, some sort of special grocery store. Who knows? But yeah, that's under the Silver Lake. Uh, keep your eyes out for that bonus pod. Also, um, there are a few movies that Abby and I did not see that came out this week, uh, simply because of time reasons. And so you might, I understand a lot of you are looking at it. I don't see The Intruder. I don't see Ugly Dolls. Where is Sam Nolan? He wrote the Cinemaholics review for Ugly Dolls, gave it a C minus, right? Well, yes. And you can go check that out. Uh, unfortunately, nobody else braved Ugly Dolls. <laughs> um, so you, you'll have to uh, read Sam's review. He did not favor that film from STX, I think their first animated film, very strange. And The Intruder, which, so this is the one with uh, Michael Ealy, right? Megan Good, Dennis Quaid Mm -hmm. is like a very villainous homeowner. I I wanted to see this one. I did not have the time. Abby, are you just skipping this one entirely or what what are you hearing? Um, I think it's probably going to be a renter for me eventually. Um, I haven't heard much about it, um, but I am curious. Uh, I think it... um, the, the casting is not something you would usually see for a movie like this, which I think makes it interesting and worth checking out. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't read a ton one way or the other, but it's it's something that I'm curious about and I'll probably get to eventually. Yeah, the, the reviews aren't amazing, but I, I know people are kind of enjoying it in a very schlocky way. So mm-hmm. I am interested. It, it takes place in my neck of the woods, which is like the theme of 2019 so far. A lot of movies are happening in, in the Bay Area, and I'm, I'm all for it. I'm all for Dennis Quaid playing a villain, too, because he, oh, is, yeah. he is such a dexterous actor, and you, you wouldn't really get that notion from some of the more recent films he's done. And this one just looks bonkers to me. I, I definitely want to see it. It's from uh, Dion Taylor. I think the last movie I saw from him was either Meet the Blacks or Traffic. Uh, so very okay. very interesting new film from Sony. The, the Avengers Endgame uh, competition, I guess. So, you know, the studios are really tossing up some interesting 
yeah. interesting things to to try to eat some of Endgame's lunch. But that film, of course, is absolutely blasting the box office. We are going to uh, kind of bring that up in a second. We're going to go through some of the comments from last week before diving into our reviews. But Abby, you know, I have an icebreaker question for you. The listeners have come to expect this whenever we have somebody on. I, I We haven't had gotten this yet, but I, I would expect we would get hate mail if, if I did not ask you at least one question. The usual is, what is your Hogwarts house? I don't know if mm. you have that prepared, but I have I have a, a bonus question to ask you, especially if the Hogwarts one does not suit your, your fancy. So, but do you know what it is? My Hogwarts house? Um, I believe I am a Ravenclaw. Um, some people have told me that I, I have uh, Gryffindor qualities. I think I could be a Ravendor, um, <laughs> but I, I, I lean towards the, uh, the scholarly side of things. So I think that would be a good fit. Yeah, I, I dig Ravendor. I think that's that sounds pretty right. I like that. Uh, one of my favorite things about a film we'll talk about uh, pretty soon, uh, Booksmart, uh, involves some great Hogwarts sorting house uh, formulas and, and some theories, interesting theories going on in Olivia Wilde's movie about what you can, you could be half this, half that. I don't know if I buy it. We'll <laughs> talk about it soon. Uh, but I do have a bonus question because I know you are a fellow fan of Game of Thrones. And we oh, have yes. gotten some feedback because we have not talked about Game of Thrones yet. Uh, the most recent season, which I understand. The big reason is because Will does not watch Game of Thrones. I do. And we're thinking of maybe doing something for the finale. But Abby, you are here. You watch the show. I just want to know, what what do you think of season eight so far? Are you digging it? Are you having some issues with it? Is it a mix? What's going on? Um, it's, it's a bit of a mix. I am... Um... I'm enjoying a lot of the individual character work, um, by and large. Uh, so the second episode, um, like the, the one pre battle I thought was fantastic. Um, And of course we are, we are being very vague on purpose because we do not want to spoil anything for people who may be catching. Right. You're doing great. (laughs) Yeah. Thank (laughs) Thank you. you. Um, but yeah, there were a lot of great moments in that. Um, I have, I have a friend who, uh, is kind of obsessed with the idea of watching, characters that we're really familiar with in like action-based ways doing really normal non-action-based things and that was an episode that i thought was full of stuff like that um so like davos serving soup that's like that's a great moment um i think the uh the third episode i also liked for the reasons that a lot of other people have liked it um I was right there with everybody. Uh, I do think, though, um, I think I saw on Twitter that somebody had a pretty astute comment that it seems like a lot of the characters that we've come to trust as leaders, um, whereas in previous seasons they might have been like strong in some areas but flawed in others, mm-hmm. now it just seems like they're kind of basically incompetent at the one thing that they should know. <laughs> right, um, right. And I and I agree. I think that's that's kind of becoming a problem for a lot of the. Um, the larger characters. Um, but it's also giving some of the smaller characters uh, a chance to really kind of develop and come forward in a way that I think is interesting. So I, I think we're pretty close to the same opinion because I, I have also been mixed, but enthusiastically mixed. I think that it's it's hard to complain about a show this theatrical that we get in such amazing fashion. And I think that in hindsight, some of these weird looking missteps are going to register fine because as usual, th- this kind of feels like the Benioff and Weiss playbook of like their setup and payoff structure is very obtuse. It doesn't really match George R. R. Martin's writing and it can't because they are no longer, it's no longer an adaptation. It's now a full on, some people would call it fan fiction or brand fiction and play jokes on that, but it, it really is their thing at this point and until the books say otherwise. So 
at the moment, I'm just sort of letting it ride, dragon ride, I suppose. Uh, okay, <laughs> bonus question, and then we'll leave it at that. Favorite season and least favorite season. For me, least favorite, oh. easy, season five. It's atrocious. Favorite mm-hmm. season is season four. What about you? Okay, interesting. Um, least favorite would probably also be season five. Um, I think five and six tend to move really slowly for me. Mm. Um but uh, season favorite season is I think season three hands down um, has some of my favorite moments in it. Season four was pretty good too. Um, but I'm a I'm a big fan of the uh, Jamie Brienne relationship, and uh, yes. it had some yeah had some fantastic moments in season three as well as I think maybe my favorite ending to an episode that's been in the entire season. Um, is it can can I can I spoil that one? I feel like people have made it that far. Yes, fast forward. Okay. A minute. So if you do not want to get spoiled on a season three spoiler for Game of Thrones. <laughs> so the episode where Jamie loses his hand and like oh. the, the way that it cuts at the very end is just like peak. Like this is what I watch yep. the show for. Like that crazy thing happens. Yeah. And then it's just over. <laughs> mm. Absolutely. And season three has season three is my second favorite. So I totally, totally agree with you on those points because the what happens in season three, of course, we won't give it away is just what one of one of the peak moments in television it's one of those things that you look back on it and you're like yes this had to happen it was inevitable but in the moment it was so heartbreaking and mm. so yes wonderful season i love season 4 though i i love the fallout of season 3 and how they handle it mm-hmm. the third book is the best book in my opinion and i i just think it's such a wonderfully woven chapter in martin's ongoing story in the way that you do have this massive event that they play out on season three but i just love the way that it peters out and and that final episode in season four is one of my all-time favorites but enough game of thrones for now we could talk <laughs> game of thrones uh all podcasts we will not uh hope, hope a lot of you are enjoying the final season as well those of you who are watching before we move on to our featured review for this week, we just have a couple of comments we want to get to. Remember, if you want to hear your comment aloud on the show, just send a comment or leave a comment, I mean, on cinemahawks.com for all of our Cinemahawks episodes. We want to know what you think of the movies we're talking about. It's not all about us. So last week we talked about Avengers Endgame. It was a great podcast. We had a lot of fun talking the movie with Alicia Grouso and Matt Donato, who came on. We did all the spoilers. It was a lot of fun. We will not give away spoilers right now. Uh, we could, because there were some comments that had spoilers in them, so you definitely want to avoid those if you have not seen the movie yet. Uh, one we wanted to bring up was from James. James said, I would grade the first hour of Avengers Endgame an A, the second hour a B, and the third hour a B+. Plus. Abigail Chessie, I believe you saw Avengers Endgame as well. What, what do you think of those ratings? Do you think James uh, has a solid footing there? I do, actually. I think that's pretty solid. Um, I, I like the beginning of Endgame a lot. Um, I think it's got some solid emotional moments at the end. Um, I feel like, on the whole, the plot that they chose to go with, well, I think it was a good one. Like They, they chose to do it in a way that gave people a lot of outs. It was like the easiest way that you could have done that with the lowest possible stakes. Ooh, that's um, interesting. And that, that disappointed me a little bit. I think it did pay off pretty well in the end, um, but it did, it ended well. So yeah, that's how I feel about that. <laughs> All right. I, I definitely, I can definitely respect that, that opinion. I, I would only have a couple of things, but we could, 
Definitely don't want to stretch this conversation out. Yeah, everyone heard what I had to say about the film last week. Uh, last we have from Mad Honey, I think that's supposed to be a play on Mad Money, said, I agree with Alicia on the way the film handled Thor. Did not work for me at all. I couldn't help but feel like his arc from Ragnarok has been dropped entirely or mishandled by the Russos. The Russos, of course, being the directors of the film. Uh I don't fully agree with this. I do agree with Alicia. There were a lot of missteps, I think, with that character. But I know this has been a divisive thing with how they handle Thor in a lot of ways, mainly the way he gets depressed and what some mm-hmm. people would definitely call body shaming. I think it's actually a very complex discussion to be had. And it's, it's been fascinating to read some of the think pieces. But uh, Abby, did you have a take on that? Or do you have something maybe to recommend that uh, somebody would? I, I I'm forgetting some of the really good ones that I checked out, but they're all over the place. Yeah, um, I... Let's see. Yeah, I I I enjoyed Thor's arc. Um I do I agree that there's it gets a bit body shamey at times. Uh I I would have liked to have seen a little more development of what kind of leader he's become um after after Ragnarok. Sure. Um and I also am not super happy with the way that he ends things with Valkyrie. Uh, it, it's I think hmm. that's written in what's meant to be a more empowering moment for her, but it feels very much the opposite. I think um, <laughs> I found that a little problematic. But apart from that, I think it it was okay. Sounds good. Yeah, I can definitely see that side of it. It's something that I've been considering more since a few people have brought that up. So I, I think that is mm-hmm. a perspective people are throwing onto the movie. Uh, if you agree, disagree, you can definitely check out the the episode from last week and leave some follow-up comments. We'd love to read them. But without any further ado, Abby, let's talk about our first film of the week. This is the, I believe this is the widest release, I want to say, uh, for this weekend. Um it's coming out, or no, sorry, Ugly Dolls had the widest release, which of course we're not talking about it. Uh, that came out in over 3,600 theaters. Longshot came out in 3,200. And so eating up some of those Avengers Endgame screens, I suppose. But yes, Longshot is a romantic comedy, but with a lot of political undertones. This is coming to us from the director of 5050, Jonathan Levine. Uh, it's written by Dan Sterling and Liz Hanna. And the whole film is about a, a woman who is the secretary of state. She works for a kind of TV star president who doesn't really take the job seriously. Wow. What does that sound like? And she hires a journalist played by Seth Rogen. Oh, and I forgot to mention, of course, the secretary of state is played by Charlize Theron, the, the wonderful Charlize Theron. And she wants to run for president and get the endorsement from the current president, who's played by Bob Odenkirk in a role that when he first appears, I don't know if you'll agree with this, very much felt to me like Michael Scott, like the way he was playing Michael Scott from The Office in one of those later episodes. Uh, Was that just me? Or I don't even know if you are a fan of The Office. I I am. Actually, I could see that. That that tracks for me. Yeah. It it doesn't hold up because because there are later scenes where you're like, uh, that's not really Michael Scott, so my my head cannon doesn't work anymore. But yes, I I definitely got the feeling like when they were writing it, they were definitely like being like, all right, how would Steve Carell do this? But mm-hmm. regardless, uh, Bob Odenkirk does a, a pretty good job in my opinion. So. The Secretary of State, Charlotte Field, she hires a kind of firebrand journalist who works out of this kind of like justice like anti-establishment newspaper. Uh, and Seth Rogen's character, I forget his name in the film, but uh, Fred, actually. Yeah. He he goes on he goes with her on a tour around the world, and she actually used to be his babysitter. So he's always had this really deep crush on her. And over the course of this tour, he maybe starts to feel, oh, maybe, maybe there's something here. Maybe there's something romantic between us. The problem, of course, is that 
not only is it a long shot for Charlotte Field to win the presidency because she is a woman and because of all the all the difficult things that women have to face when running for public office because uh, all the challenges that they have to face that men usually don't. Uh, with all of that, it's also a long shot for, for someone like her to work with someone like Fred, who is a little bit more schlubby, very cute, very cute man, very funny, and definitely... Uh, as somebody, you could definitely see the chemistry between them, I suppose. And mm-hmm. and I think that is one thing about this film that I, I actually adore is the chemistry at play. And you you do kind of wonder yourself, wow, these two people, I do buy that they would be in a close relationship and it develops in a, in a way that you don't always see from romantic comedies. So let's talk about it. The the cast also includes O'Shea Jackson Jr. as one of Fred's best friends, Andy Serkis in a role that I did not know was him until after the movie and the credits rolled, uh, June Diane Raphael, which is so great to see her again, Bob mm-hmm. Odenkirk, as I mentioned, and Alexander Skarsgård, who I thought had the least to do in this one. Uh, I was a little, let, I felt a little let down by that character arc personally, but Abby, generally speaking, did did you enjoy long shots? Did it uh, did it win your heart? It it really did. I um I I'm kind of ride or die for long shot. I liked it a lot. I liked it very mm. much. Um, I am one of those people who thinks that the romantic comedy um has been kind of going through a long overdue renaissance uh, in the last year plus um like it's it's almost been getting to the point where i i was questioning like do i just not like romantic comedies because i feel like they're not Mm. doing for me what they should um and this was the first that i'd seen in a long time where it made me think this this is what i want when i watch a romantic comedy this is charming it understands its audience it is showing a relationship that is genuinely supportive um and it's actually funny the characters are really well developed so yeah i i really love it I could agree more with the kind of what you're implying there is that they're likable characters. You you never get the feeling that Charlotte Field, like Charlize Theron, you can tell a woman co-wrote this because mm-hmm. her character is written in a very human way. She's she's fun. You know, she respects her job. She takes her job seriously, but it, she's a human being. She has a lot of layers to her. And part of the fun of the movie is we're sort of following Seth Rogen along as he gets to know her more as her speechwriter because he has to ask her personal questions. And even though they, they know each other from childhood, there is this kind of nice, like, getting to know you again element to the, this romantic comedy, which I really appreciated it because... I don't know. I, I can't think of a lot of romantic comedies that do that sort of thing in any sort of believable way. I think of films like No Strings Attached, which kind of does it in the clunky way of like a mo- almost a montage of different moments in their life when they sort of reconnect. But you never really get the feeling that they knew each other at some point. Whereas I think mm-hmm. this film does a better job at that. And I know I'm citing a film from like nine years ago to make my point. Regardless, yes, the very likable characters. Like They have flaws to them. I think that the Seth Rogen character could have easily been played for just just being abrasive and overly aggressive mm-hmm. and not supportive to what you were saying. But he's a mix of things. He's he's definitely a little excitable, which is relatable in a lot of ways. Like in his situation, a lot of us could could see ourselves reacting in the same way as him, kind of awkwardly, not knowing what to do, but also having your heart in the right place, which is a nice message. So the film it sounds like the film worked for both of us, but was there anything that kind of like weirded you out or did you watch the film more than once? Actually, I haven't. I've only watched it the once, um, but I, I do hope to see it again. Um, I'm trying to think if there was anything about it that I didn't love immediately. Um, I think 
it's it's possible that they could have developed uh, O'Shea Jackson Jr.'s character a little bit. I do like what we get to see of him. Um, I mm-hmm. think I, I like him so much that I would like to see more of him. I think the same probably goes for uh, June Diane Raphael's character, um, which is, I mean, they're they're kind of stock best friend characters in romantic comedies. But I feel right. like the movie does such a good job with what you see of them that I want more. Um, and I, I agree with you that I think Alexander Skarsgård's character kind of shows up um, and plays a role and then just sort of disappears. Um, and that, I, I think that could have been developed a little bit further too. Um, but yeah, it's, I think I'm, I'm sort of in like the honeymoon phase with this where it's just, I just enjoyed yeah, it so much. The flaws don't matter. <laughs> like, it's fine. Yeah. The flaws don't matter. It's fine. You can nitpick it. I, I, I do some, I did find myself nitpicking some of the arcs and being like, Oh, they didn't really sure. finish this arc in any sort of real way, but I guess I was okay with it. Like I didn't really knock the film that much for it because it's so long that mm-hmm. I was ready for it to end in, in a good way. That's true. I, I, yeah. It's, and I it's think over you could two probably, hours. You could probably complain a little bit about the length, but, um, but honestly I did, that didn't bother me much either. Um, it's, I think what the movie does, it, it creates characters that you want to spend time with. I think the right. thing that makes those getting to know you bits so effective is that it introduces both Charlotte and Fred as characters that are innately fun to be around and interesting to be around um and so like you want to watch them get to know each other because they're they're interesting you want to know more about them yeah and i was surprised because i don't know some films have tried to be political over the last few years and i think a lot of them have struggled to to maintain that balance of like okay, we get it. Veep is now like very close to reality. It's like Mm -hmm. politics is very heightened at the moment. And so when a film kind of dives into this territory, it can be so tricky because for a lot of people, what's going on in the world is very depressing and it's very divisive. It's very polarized. We, we, we get knocked all the time if we bring anything up because people don't want to hear it. They don't want to they don't want to deal with this, all the bad news going on right now. They don't want to deal with, you know, being hated for, for who they voted for, all of these things. And so I went into Longshot a little skeptical because I was like, oh, how are they going to... But then I remembered this is Jonathan Levine, who, as I mentioned before, in 50-50, 50-50 has such serious subject matter with mm-hmm. cancer. And he, I thought that film was wonderful in the way that you never felt like he was using cancer as a commodity, as a punchline. He was always treating it with a decent amount of respect, of you understanding what the characters who are dealing with it are actually going through. And with Longshot, mm-hmm. not to say that that has much going on in the way of politics, it sort of rests on an environmental issue, which is pretty bipartisan for a lot of people, I would say. So you can kind of move away from like Republican Democrat things and you can just sort of be like, all right, what does it mean to be political, have a political integrity? And and I like that the film straddles that line. It doesn't alienate uh, any specific issues because it does at one point um, in, in regards to a couple of the characters, as you sort of mentioned, we won't give that away. And sure. it doesn't go all the way with it. I thought uh, maybe a rewatch would change my mind, but uh, how, what about, what about you? How do you think this film handled its political undertones? It's actually, it's good that you bring that up actually, because that is something that um, I think there's not as much in that movie as as there could have been. Um, I do think that the uh, particular conflict that it brings up with with one character um, that is yeah, it's it's a pretty interesting thing when it when it does pop up. Um, I think I would like to see a little more dialogue around that. Um, and additionally, I think it's it's interesting to me that it doesn't the movie doesn't reveal much of of Charlotte's own politics, like where they lie. I don't even think we know what party she's running with. Um, but uh, the fact that she's seeking um, 
the endorsement of of uh, Bob Odenkirk's president character, who mm-hmm. she seems to be kind of diametrically opposed to, um, in a kind of political logic sense, doesn't quite work for me uh, the way that I feel like the movie wants it to. Like from a from a script logic standpoint, I think it makes sense. But if you are somebody who is running on a platform with a certain amount of idealism, and the person that you are hoping will endorse you doesn't back you up, I feel like that doesn't look great to supporters. And that's a pretty easy thing to figure out. Um, I don't really know if there's a way around that where you can kind of take that and make it palatable to a, um, a mainstream audience like that. Um, kind of made me wonder if he was actually not to interrupt, but it actually made me wonder if they were sort of implying he's like an independent, he he's Uh, kind of like nonpartisan. So you Mm -hmm. don't, it's doing the parks and recreation thing almost. Right. It's like, don't call the parties out. Yeah. Let people fill in the gaps. And it's more about you as a person and how you deal with politics as a human being, not as a party. Cause that, that has so many hangups. It has so much intertextuality that a screenplay just can't possibly control unless that's what the film is supposed to be about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And that was something that I really appreciated about, about Parks and Rec too, was how it made politics um, more about the importance of civic engagement um, and the importance of caring about things and trying to do right. good stuff um, than anything else. Um, and I think this movie tries to do that too. Um, I don't know that it, um, the setting I think makes it harder to pull that off. And I think some of those scenes show a little bit um, but for the most part, I think the messages that it's trying to get across, it it does successfully. All right. I, I definitely agree with that. I think that it's, it, it is one of those films that, like you were saying before, it's about the romance, really. And it's about these characters. It's about them getting to know each other and dealing with heightened situations. And there's specifically a scene involving Molly that is probably my favorite, favorite whole thing that the film does. It's so wonderful and engaging. And I... I I re- it's the one thing that I don't think will ever escape my mind is like that entire stretched out scene is just it, some, of the, some of the best comedy uh, I've seen this year. We're talking about two amazing comedies actually this this week, which I'm, I'm happy about. But oh, yeah. winding it down, you know, I, I definitely wanted this one to be a little bit more successful at the box office. It's not doing well. I think I, I know a lot of people are blaming Avengers Endgame. But it is hard because this is sort of a mid-sized budget film based on an original idea, and it has high-profile actors. What's going on here? Why are people not watching this? It's only made uh, $13 million at the box office. It's such a low debut for this. It costs $40 million to make. It needs to do better. What, what, what's your theory? Is, is it the marketing, or do you think people just don't want to go see a political romantic comedy? Um, I think maybe the marketing. It's... Um... I've seen a couple of reviews uh, that were a little bit disappointingly shallow uh, in terms of um, like Seth Rogen is now a romantic lead. We just have to accept it. I think maybe some people are getting a little bit tired of sort of the the um, schlubby boyfriend uh, storyline that pops up in a lot of romantic comedies. Maybe sure. that's something that's kind of getting worn out. Um but I hope that people give it a shot because I think the the movie does something really different and interesting with that formula. Um, and it's maybe Avengers Endgame is to blame a little bit. Um, I know people are still like super psyched about it. Um, but yeah, I've been I've been playing this up to as many people as I can. Like it's a great date night movie. It is an excellent choice if you're wanting to go out and see something super pleasant with a person you care about. Um, and I don't know that a lot of people 
had that at the top of their mind. At least the people, the friends that I have talked to about it didn't, it didn't seem to quite register for them until I told them. Um, so it, it may just be that it's maybe the, the genre has gotten to a point where it just doesn't really float anymore. Um, but I hope people give it a shot. Yeah. I, a long shot. <laughs> a lo- Oh, there it is. Okay. Ah. Yeah. I, I was like, oh, am I going to have to edit that in? Yeah, anyway. <laughs> yeah. So critics definitely really like this one. 83% mm-hmm. on Rotten Tomatoes. That That is great. A lot of critics were, were high on this. And you don't always see that for Manta comedies, which is pretty exciting, especially ones that are a bigger budget like this, like a studio mm-hmm. Manta comedy. But what I'm seeing is, I mean, its cinema score was a B. And that sort of gives the impression to me that the word of mouth probably isn't helping this. Uh, mm. We'll see what happens next weekend. But I, I just wonder if people are being turned off by the length of it. Uh, maybe they they wanted something a little bit more traditional. I think critics are really liking it because it is a bit more inventive with mm-hmm. its romantic comedy. Like there are certain things that happen where you're like, oh, this is happening already? That's, oh, interesting. Um, which I appreciated because of, of, we see so many romantic comedies. It's just nice to see something different and innovative. But of course, that can cause some people to maybe – not 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 appreciated as much and, and not get what they thought they were going to get. So I agree. People should get a long shot. I don't think it's a long shot to say that this is a film you'll probably enjoy. My final grade was actually a, a solid B. I think it's really solid. Uh, I, I got close to B+. I think the, the character arcs not always hitting their marks is what hurt me ultimately on giving it a B+. But mm. what about you, Abby? What's your final grade for this one? Um, I think I would give it an A-. minus. For those those same reasons, um, I I know I've I've said already that I I'm super ride or die for this. I love it <laughs> a lot. Um, maybe it's it's definitely got flaws. I mean, not every movie is perfect, but it's it's pretty close to exactly what I want from a romantic comedy. All right, so A minus for Abby Olchesi, and based on what the critics are saying, I I think that is a very good position. All right, let's move on to our next film. Uh, we both saw this as well, and this is another comedy, not a romantic comedy, but more of a teenage comedy, and the director, Olivia Wilde, she's very specifically said, I got to see this at the San Francisco Film Festival, and she specifically was like, we wanted this to be a generational anthem, and that film is book smart. Uh, when you watch it, you will absolutely be like, oh, I get what she's saying. This is like Dazed and Confused meets Superbad meets a lot of other films from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s that is based around teenagers going to parties, coming of age, and ultimately is about friendship. And like I said, Olivia Wilde directed it. The screenplay comes from Emily Halpern and Sarah Haskins, Susanna Fogel, and Katie Silberman. The cast includes Caitlin Deaver and Beanie Feldstein as these best friends who they're book smart, right? They... They did what they were supposed to do in school. They didn't go to parties. They got straight A's. They got into amazing colleges. But the problem is it's the last day of school, and they just found out that everybody in their class is also going to awesome colleges. And so they're wondering, did we make a mistake? Did we did we give up fun in high school for something that we didn't have? Did we needlessly give up having fun in, in high school? So they try to cram all of the partying into one final night before graduation. Will Ferrell and Adam McKay are executive producers on this, which I have to admit made me a little wary because I was like, okay, how was, what, what, to what extent did they have creative control over this film? And after watching it, I'd say 
probably zero to none. Uh, I definitely didn't get that sort of vibe. This is a very different kind of comedy because Olivia Wilde, this is her first film. She's, of course, a wonderful actress, and I love her directing style. I think it's a little shabby around the edges. I think that she she might have not had some calls and with editing that might have made this a little bit tighter, but I think for a first time director, this is, this is incredible stuff. I, adore, I'm ride or die for book smart. I've seen the film twice now and I, I haven't laughed this hard in a movie in so long. The first time I saw it, I was basically collapsing in my chair from laughing at this movie. Second time I saw it, I didn't collapse. <laughs> I didn't fall out of my chair this time, uh, but mainly because I was with my girlfriend and I didn't want to embarrass myself, but I came close. Um, and I think it got me even more the second time on an emotional level, but Abby Chessy, what about you? Do you did, was Booksmart uh, was was it in the A territory for you, or are you signing this report card uh, an incomplete or worse? Oh, it's an A. It's absolutely an A. Um, oh, thank goodness. Yeah, I I identify very strongly with this movie. Um, uh, Molly and Amy uh, Beanie Feldstein and uh, Caitlin Deaver's characters are a very close approximation of what I was like in high school. Um, oh, and, wait, Abby, I'm sorry, but yeah. can, we've got to say, you didn't just give it an A. Did you give it a triple A? Oh, uh, there it is. Yes. Clever. Only makes sense if you've seen the film. Oh, yeah, Apologize. absolutely. <laughs> good good in-joke. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm jealous you've gotten to see it twice because I can't wait to see it again. Um, it's, yeah, I, I identify very closely with Molly and Amy um, as well as... Um, just the the things they talk about, the experiences that they have, um, that desire to be more popular with their classmates, um, and like I I really love um, I, I love high school movies, especially that are just kind of like one long party, like one yeah, long one odyssey. Night. So yeah, like Super Bad is like that. Uh, Dazed and Confused is like that. Um, I'm trying to think 16 candles, like one of the Mm. classics of the genre is like that. Um, And it's just it's a really fun way to navigate um, all of the different kinds of characters and and person types that you find in high school. Um, And I think the movie does that really well um, and kind of mixes it along with um, the sort of bittersweetness of growing up and changing and wanting to get in like the last few things before you leave and become a completely different person um and what else uh i think that 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 may be that may be most of it but i think it, it hits that kind of hilarious and um and sweet mark and sad mark just right right at the most effective point mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i i can agree more and i think one of the things that really rounds us out is the cast because on paper I look at this cast and I look at the way these characters are written and I think that is kind of thin. But then you realize that is kind of the point is that these characters seem thin at first glance. And a lot of the fun of the film is learning alongside these two girls that maybe they were being a little judgmental and maybe they were sort of taking their classmates for granted. And I love that message. It's such a positive message. It's one that does carry that genuine, authentic feel of high school because that really is what high school is like. It isn't the you know, breakfast club niche kind of clicky sort of thing that was present in the 80s in John Hughes movies. It's different now. That high school is just very different. And I appreciate that someone like Olivia Wilde is coming in to do a film about this subject because it is so, 
it, it is so relevant to what, what I, what I personally perceive, like my, my niece is in high school and, you know, I, I definitely, I, I do my best to relate with the kids, but it, it's, it's not easy. Um, they're, they're, they're going through some stuff and I, and Abby, I do appreciate that we, we both apparently gravitate toward these films like eighth grade last year was about a sort of similar subject matter in, in a broad sense, not, not mm-hmm. as specific as this. And definitely a, more of like the characters in eighth grade who are older, right? Is that's more the story we're following. But as I right. mentioned, yes, the cast. The the cast is where this really shines for me. I thought Billy Lord as Gigi, this sort of eccentric character, was such a delight, such a great way to break up the action. I was not aware of Skylar Zondo, Gizondo, uh, who plays Jared in this, who I didn't mm. know what to make of him the first time. This by the by the time I watched this the second time, I was all in with this character. I think that he's brilliant and it's such a fun uh, relief, comic relief. Uh, Jessica Williams loved seeing her. I, I feel like I haven't seen her since her Netflix original that she did last year. And Jason Sudeikis, who pops up in this, absolutely wonderful. Again, kind of a thinly written character. Same sort of goes for Lisa Kudrow and Will Forte, who play Amy's parents. <laughs> they, they get some of the best laughs, but they're they're not really in the movie much, which I, I did appreciate it. What, what about you? Do you feel like these characters had the right amount of time each? Um, I think they did. Um, I think they did in, in the sense that the way that we see them and what we find out about them is probably pretty close to the way that Molly and Amy understand them. Um, maybe with the exception of, of Amy's parents, um, Will Forte and, uh, and Lisa Kudrow, since I know that one, one of the the running jokes in the movie is how, how strongly Amy feels about her parents and how much she loves them. But, uh, I, I think it, it, it makes sense. Like from an outsider perspective, this is probably how, how you would relate to like, Jessica Williams, like the cool teacher in your class or your principal um, or like Billy Lord's insane, like ubiquitous demon character who just kind of shows up at every single party they go to. She is amazing, by the way. I hope that this is like the breakout role that she so richly deserves because holy cow, she has got so much energy in this. Like she is really committed and it's it's something that could very easily be like obnoxiously over the top. And it never gets there. Like she is exactly as crazy as this role requires her to be. Yeah, there are a lot of newcomers in this, and and you kind of get the sense like Molly Gordon, for example, plays Annabelle, who's nicknamed AAA, and mm-hmm. uh, Mason Gooding, Victoria Rezga, and Austin Crute, uh, and a few others. They they're all relative newcomers who I was just honestly not aware of. I don't think that they've been in a lot of things yet. And this does feel like one of those comedies where I think in a few years people are going to are going to rewatch this film and be like, "Oh my gosh, Molly Gordon was in Booksmart, really? Oh yeah, oh wow, yeah." Because she's already in another film coming out in August called Good Boys. Does not look as good as this, <laughs> but oh, that's actually, another I sort have of seen super good bad. Boys. Yeah, you I saw actually, it. I got to see. Yeah, I got to see Good Boys at South by Southwest, and it's actually really sweet. And she's quite good in it. So yeah, really? I think. We're going to be seeing a lot more from her. I think good when we did our summer movie preview, Good Boys was one of my dark horses of a film that I think oh, yeah. kind of looks terrible, but I'm hoping it's really good. So yeah. for, for those who don't know, it's, it's basically super bad, but for tweens. So they're like mm-hmm. 11 or 12. And I want it to be really funny. So is it is it funny on top of being sweet? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think it's okay. it's it's really funny. And I think it is. I, I enjoy that it is a movie that's trying to be about um young boys learning how to be how to be good how to be good boys and how to be good men um mm-hmm. on top of just all of the crazy antics so like m- much like booksmart i think it's a nice balance of like genuine emotion and like just really funny comedy 
All right. I appreciate that tangential early review for Good Boys. <laughs> we'll talk more about Good Boys in a few months. Uh, very, very excited to hear that it's it's better than I anticipated. Uh, that's always good to hear. But yeah, like I said, lots of newcomers. I think that Nick, Ryan, Theo, these all look, seem like people who will show up later on. And and we got to give it up to Caitlin Deaver and, and Beanie Fieldstein. They've been around. They, they've done films. Uh, I, th- I think the last I saw Caitlin Deaver was uh, Detroit and Feldstein, I think, uh, Lady Bird, of course. But you know, I, ever since I think Neighbors 2, I've been kind of waiting for a film like this to really position her in the center because she has such a, a wacky charisma, but not... Not not a charisma you some people would ascribe to her. She has like it, it's mentioned at one point that she is a Slytherin, and as a Slytherin myself, yes. <laughs> and she she to me is like what the best Slytherins are. We're enablers. We are we are we can be a little bossy, right? But mm-hmm. we're also a lot of fun, and we can be we can be fun at parties. It's it's true. And so I I think the way that these characters are written is just. So well done. It, it doesn't fall into a lot of the tropes uh, that they normally would. There, there obviously are some things where like, Molly feels a little insecure at times about the way she looks and if she can be with a guy that she has a crush on. But I thought it handled it in an authentic way, but also a way that it just it made sense. And it, it, it didn't treat her like some sort of punching bag or anything like that. But uh, what do you think of these two central leads? I think they're both great. Um, I... I think this is a, a movie like this because it's about best friends. Like it, much like Longshot, relies very strongly on the chemistry yeah. of the central relationship, and I think that's for sure there. Um, I think Caitlin Deaver and Beanie Feldstein play off of each other really well. They actually seem like good friends. Yeah. Um, and they oh, I both should say ha- real quick uh, on that note. Um, sorry to cut you off. But oh yeah, you're fine. They were they were at the screening and they talked about that. They actually lived together while they were shooting this. Um, oh. And so not that they were trying to force the chemistry, but all of the actors were like basically in the same building together. And I think that was kind of Olivia Wilde's call of like to try to help build that chemistry. And I think mm-hmm. it paid off really well. So sorry, go on. Oh no, for sure. I think that's a brilliant choice uh, because it really seems like all of the the actors in the film are really comfortable around each other. Like you really feel like these are people who have spent a long time getting to know each other and can like anticipate what they're going to do and mm-hmm. can play off of each other's like weird quips or dance moves um, or like are annoyed by each other in what feels like a really authentic way. Um, but yeah, I, I love watching the two of them together. Um, and I think they're, they're just, really great performers both of them couldn't agree more uh, i'm a big fan of their chemistry i'm a big fan of the the writing involved here and and this is it kind of reminded me in a way again mentioning eighth grade and the way it was edited there are a lot of smash cuts to to songs and there is like a you get the sense that wild really wants to come out the gate swinging and this is what i appreciate from first time directors sometimes they can play it a little safe like they they'll focus way more on the screenplay which is great and, and they'll worry a lot about how tight it is and, and make sure that you can follow along easily and sometimes directors they have a vision but maybe they listen a little bit too much to people who are like oh you shouldn't do it that way because okay oh look i've been a dp on so many other films I really like the way that Wilde collaborates because I think she, this is just my intuition, but I think she has a knack for knowing when to go with suggestions from other people and when to put herself into it. Because there were so many moments in this film that did feel wildly unique, no pun intended, Um, but to her and, and to her sensibility as a director. And I think she she brought out some, what I assume are some of the best parts of this screenplay that do sell the relationships here that also sell a lot of the comedy. There's one scene in particular, my favorite shot 
uh, involving one of the main characters in a swimming pool. And mm-hmm. it's probably my favorite shot of the year so far. And, it, and it's just, it's beauty, it's simplicity. It means so many different things at once. And it ends in a very Jaws moment that just wrecks you. And I, I absolutely adore it. So so many scenes we could go on and on about, but let's let's go right into our final thoughts on this. I think we both love it. You gave it an A. So you, so you believe it's a must-see? Everyone needs to go out and see Booksmart, which comes out on May 21st, 24th? 24th. Yes. Yeah, I think this movie needs to be huge. I think it needs to be uh, a classic of the genre. Um, it's it's the kind of movie that I think it's the kind of plot that guys get a lot that girls very rarely do, um, yeah. and especially especially nerdy girls like me. So I think for for that reason alone, I think it's worth seeing. But also, it's just it's it's just so good. Like it deserves to be considered one of the best. It it really should. It really should. I I think I I think that's going to happen. I think this film is going to reach a status of being revisited a lot by people who grew up with it and by people our age who don't necessarily have the generational connection to it. But hey, if we can enjoy Days and Confused, which was way before our time, uh, I think we can definitely get a lot out of Booksmart, and I certainly did. And I think based on what I'm seeing, okay, critics love it, 100% on Rotten Tomatoes based on 38 reviews. That's a pretty, <laughs> pretty definitive mm-hmm. uh, consensus so far. I, I think, of course, it'll probably go down eventually, but uh, I think critics are, are really digging this. And I think that just based on the conversation around this film, ever since it came out at South by Southwest or when the trailer came out before that, I think people have just people that I know who aren't normally into movies. You don't see movies like Longshot because they don't even know Longshot exists. They know what this movie is. And I think it's it's permeating the culture in a way that I hope translate translates to financial success and and maybe uh as we were saying with like romantic comedies having a renaissance i I think comedies are in a good place right now but i I definitely want to see a really good one rise to the top in a way that we haven't quite seen in a while Uh, maybe i'm speaking too soon but it's going to be distributed by united artists which you know look their last film was with a leica right they they distributed missing link and that is one of the biggest flops of the year so i'm hoping that this one is uh, an exception to what's what's been a little difficult for not just United Artists but also Annapurna, uh, which mm-hmm. has been struggling with its indies to to really rise to kind of do what A twenty four manages to do, which is really get cinephiles to to spread the word on these movies. But we'll see what happens. I think that Olivia Wilde has a lot of cachet. I think Will Ferrell and Adam McKay as executive producers is helping. Uh, send awareness out. I'm an A minus on this film. It's I think it's my favorite comedy of the year. Yeah, I would agree. I'm in the same boat. All right. It's just been a love fest on Cinemaholics this week for comedies. I think we're going to have to transition to something that maybe isn't as good. In fact, I, I I wouldn't go as far to say that it's extremely wicked. Like, I wouldn't say this movie is shockingly evil. I would not even say that it's vile. But it is a movie called Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile. I apologize to everyone who hates my jokes, who think my sense of humor is in fact extremely wicked, shocking, evil, and vile. I agree with you. It's terrible. But look, when if you manage to watch this film, yeah, you might give me a pass. But this is a new biological or biographical rather crime thriller about the life of serial killer Ted Bundy, but it's told through the perspective of his live-in girlfriend Liz, who they started dating in the late 60s before 
uh, a lot of the press around his serial killings when he was sent to jail, when he escaped from jail, and all of that drama happened. He was in a long-term but ultimately very shaky relationship with a woman named Liz and her daughter, Molly. She was a single mother. Uh, this film is directed by Joe Berlinger. Screenplay is by Michael Worry. And it's actually based on a memoir by Elizabeth Liz Kendall herself. It's called The Phantom Prince, My Life with Ted Bundy. Abby, have you read this book or do you have do you have a lot of uh, contextual knowledge about Ted Bundy himself? Um, I don't have a ton other than just kind of what's basic public record that he was a really good looking, charming guy and then turned out to be a horrifying serial killer. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, I recommend the Netflix doc. This is a Netflix film, by the way. Uh, Netflix got the rights to it out of Sundance. And I believe that's correct, which is interesting because when this was playing at Sundance, uh, I was there and I I didn't go to the screening. Instead, I watched the documentary that Netflix came out with in January, The Confessions of a Killer, the Ted Bundy tapes. Cinemaholics listeners will remember I talked about that briefly. Very solid documentary. Uh, it, it's a multi-parter, and so the, it's broken up in some interesting ways. Definitely lays out the story in in a way that I found interesting and compelling. This movie, not so much. It it, it goes a little bit deeper on the Liz story. Obviously, she play, she's played in this film by Lily Collins. Love Lily Collins. Uh, I think that the last time I saw her in was probably To the Bone, which I understand it wasn't for everybody, but I I, I thought that film was kind of solid. And Zac Efron. Uh, who plays Ted Bundy, who really looks the part uh, to the point where Alonzo Duraldi from The Rap actually predicted a few years ago that he would play this character. And so he's been rightfully uh, broadcasting his his prophetic awareness for this film. But has this one been on your radar at all, Abby, this this drama about Ted Bundy? And why or why not? Um, it has a little bit. I am am curious about the story. Um, I'm curious about the story from the the perspective of of his girlfriend, actually, um, since that is, I actually I hadn't been previously aware of the book, but that is something that I would like to check out. But I I think that that's an interesting plot. Um, and mm. I'm I'd be really curious to see what that's like, knowing that that is not like a weird lifetime movie, but like an actual thing that happened to a person. Ooh, lifetime movie is the word here. Um, I think that's uh, exactly what I was going for. Wow. So I have not read the memoir, but I definitely have a feeling that it's it's got to be a little bit better than this. Like it's got to be a little bit more narratively satisfying from the Elizabeth Kendall perspective because this movie, obviously. It, it is how she's dealing with everything. A lot of reaction shots. We get some development of how she's like more and more starting to realize, oh, maybe he really did all of this. And the clash between her and some of the other characters, it, it's interesting. And I, I don't hate this film or anything. I, I just really, really walked away from it, not really getting the point of the movie itself. Why did I just watch this? What is it really trying to say about somebody in this situation? Because it sort of, has a a weird last minute reversal of empathy that involves the Lily Collins character sort of confessing something and then seeking a momentary catharsis with Ted Bundy. Um, And it it just doesn't quite work for me. I, I just don't think this is a satisfying film Especially if you're inter- that if you're very interested in Ted Bundy, I think the documentary is 
vastly superior, right? You're, you're going to get a more complete picture of what he did. This movie doesn't spend a ton of time on the victims, uh, which some people would say is a plus because, you know, you, you don't want to, first of all, make Ted Bundy kind of this overly charismatic and likable person, which jury is out on whether or not, no pun intended, whether or not that actually translates here. Like if you actually watch this film and walk away from it being like, oh, he was such a charming guy. Again, I think the documentary handles some of that nuance a little bit better because you can kind of watch this movie and for a lot of it be like, well, did he really do it? And I had to keep reminding myself, yeah, he did. Like the evidence is so overwhelming, but the movie, because it wants Liz to doubt it so heavily, it it sort of lets us, it sort of lets that cloud hang until it can no longer. And then there's just something very strange about the way, the note that it lands on. I'm really bummed about it because- Ah, uh, the performances here are pretty good. <laughs> I I think Zac Efron kills it. I don't know. I'm these are all unintended wordplay, by the way. Like, I'm so sorry about this. I feel very this bad. This is pretty bad. It's, this it's is bad. bad. <laughs> I don't mean any of it. I promise. Um, Zac Efron does a fantastic job. Just gonna straight talk here. Uh, he he really he really is good at capturing. There is an unsettling nature to Ted Bundy's charm. It's not just a very handsome guy who probably did something bad. It, it is a handsome guy, but you can kind of tell there's something behind those dead eyes. And Lily Collins, even though she doesn't get a lot of the development I personally was wanting from her character in, in a way that really fleshed her out, she she's she's doing super well at showing the emotional doubt, actually making you believe that what she she's trying to process memory to in a certain in a few scenes that's it's chaotic but in a very very effective way and then oh my goodness kaya scotelario's in this and and i haven't seen her since pirates of the caribbean dead man tell no tales and i thought oh no <laughs> here's an actress that i really love she was so great on skins skins has been having a renaissance with a lot of its actors dev patel of course and nicholas holtz and uh not Taron Egerton, but the guy who kind of looks like him. Um, a lot of there are a lot of great actors on Skins, is what I'm saying. They're fantastic, and you'll see them all over the place. Gendry, of course, who could forget Gendry and Gilly from Game of Thrones? And I'm blanking on their name, their actual name, so I apologize. But regardless, I I, I thought that Kaya Scotelario is is given uh, definitely a different role than we've seen her in before, uh, but one that's treated well. And I think that Jim Parsons and John Malkovich. I was surprised to see them. I was also very surprised to see Haley Joel Osment. I haven't seen him since probably Silicon Valley, one of the more recent seasons. But Jim Parsons plays a lawyer in here, like a Florida lawyer that I couldn't help but laugh at. I mean, it's good. He's not a bad actor, but it's just so strange to see Sheldon being this like tough talking Florida prosecutor. (laughs) I had a hard time getting over that. That's a personal failing. And then John Malkovich, I thought was probably the best casting here next to Efron and Collins, just pitch perfect because the the way that he battles wits with Zac Efron's Ted Bundy is something to watch. I think that the latter half of this movie finds some steam that the, the first couple, you know, first couple actions, eh, they, they don't quite have it, but I think this is one of those films that gets a little bit better as it goes along. I, I, I can't say Abby that I recommend it. It's, it's a, it's a C plus for me at this point. I don't think it's, it's anywhere near as useful a film as it could have been. And I think that even though the documentary isn't anything spectacular, that's kind of like a B B minus sort of documentary. It does its job and then some. So I would definitely recommend seeking that or the memoir out, or maybe just not look into it all. Cause Ted Bundy is not somebody who I personally think is, 
I mean, it, it's interesting, I guess, and like a historical, it's good. I guess it's just interesting to learn more things, but there's nothing about his story that I think informs anything else. So that's where I'm at with extremely wicked, shockingly evil and vile. All right, let's, uh, let's move on to something that you've seen, but I haven't. Uh, this is a new show. It's on Netflix, right? Uh-huh, it is. Okay, I, I've seen a lot of tweets about this. I, I have very little knowledge on it, so I'm going to be bugging you with questions. Uh, Abigail, Jesse, what is Tuca and Birdie? Okay, so it, it's funny, first of all, that you say tweets. You're really, you're you're killing the puns today, oh, Here John. we go. Mama <laughs> mia, here we go again. <laughs> uh, so Tuca and Birdie is um, the new show from Lisa Hanawalt, who uh, audiences probably best know from uh, Bojack Horseman, where she is the production designer and uh, one of the producers. Um, but yeah, this is her baby. It's about uh, two best friends uh, voiced by Ali Wong, who plays Birdie, and Tiffany Haddish, who plays Tuka, uh, who live in the big city. Uh, and so it's it's sort of like uh, Broad City by way of Richard Scarry, I think is a good way to describe <laughs> it. Um, so the the city that they live in they're all they're all animals uh tuca is a toucan birdie is uh i can't remember what kind of bird she is but she's a kind of songbird um and all of the characters around them are like anthropomorphized animals most of them are birds some of them are cats uh some of them are lizards some of them are monkeys um it's just it's it's a very uh animal diverse place um well and- so the animation the animation looks like bojack horseman but is it yes. not like the Bojack Horseman universe? Uh it's 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 very similar and uh by the time you get to around the third episode it becomes increasingly clear that that's that's what they're going for. Um Like are there humans though? There there are. There start okay. to be some human characters involved. None of them are mains, but uh but yeah, it it becomes increasingly more so the further in you get. Um Got it. But yeah, yeah, very much kind of a similar animation style. Um complete with like human looking bodies um that are animal and um bodies are a very big important part of 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 the show uh it the show does a lot with the female body uh it's it's real into boobs (laughs) well they're birds Um, so what else are they going to talk about yeah exactly from from a very freeing feminist perspective i might add Mm. um not from a weird game of thrones kind of perspective uh right so it's not fetishy okay Right. No. Yeah. It's it's very much just like kind of body positivity and um, female forward. Uh, a lot of the experiences that uh, Birdie and Tuca have um, kind of re- reflect stuff that that anybody might experience, um, especially women. Like there's an episode where uh, dealing with like trying to get a promotion as a woman in a male dominated workplace. Um, there's another episode about like being nervous on a first date um just like and like trying to spice up your love life with your live-in boyfriend like just really relatable stuff that's also just extremely funny um it's also there's there's a really great amount of of voice talent so uh ali wong and uh tiffany haddish are great uh steven yun plays uh plays birdie's boyfriend speckle um which is a great name (laughs) uh (laughs) i think who else is in this uh john early plays a number of voices reggie watts um and i see on here uh jermaine fowler and laverne yeah. cox and tessa thompson as well 
Yeah, yeah, they all play occasional roles. Um, Aquafina shows up in one episode, uh, and uh, Richard E. Grant also uh, plays Bertie's boss. So, like, he's in a few episodes. I feel wow. like this is this is the show that really gets me. Like, it's weird and <laughs> it's like all your it's extremely people. funny. Yeah, and like, oh, hey, here's Richard E. Grant because we heard you like that. It's like it's <laughs> a lot of things. Um, it's also got really fun attention to detail, um, and the rules of the world are are super fun to kind of figure out as it goes along. Um, like the subway trains are. I think one of them is a snake, and another one is like a slug. Um, and it's it's stuff that you don't. You're kind of thrown in head first into this this setting and a lot of it makes sense and then there will be inevitably there will be something that doesn't like a character that is like a plant a character with a plant for a head like that's wow. not a thing you expect to see that somehow has pet <laughs> turtles so like there's it's it's very surreal as well um but it's it's really fun because you're never quite sure what you're gonna see next yeah i'm i'm looking at some of the the episodes and i so there's 10 episodes so far. You said, how many episodes have you seen? Three? Uh, yes, I've seen the first three. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's fascinating because I'm seeing a lot of a lot of episodes directed by women and almost every single one written by a woman. And yeah, so Lisa Hannawalt has written a bunch of episodes. And uh, I see here Raphael Bob Wasberg, who is the creator of BoJack Horseman, actually worked on the, the first episode. So you can definitely sort of see that connection between the, those two shows. I love the idea of BoJack Horseman being branched out in this way. Why? These puns need to end. Birds, <laughs> branches. Anyway, I really like that the BoJack Horseman universe they they know that it has legs. They know that it it it's the kind of show that there, there's su- such good world building in it. And I, I haven't seen an episode yet, but I'm I'm in. I'm totally gonna watch Duke and Birdie. Good. I'm I'm glad you should you should watch it as soon as you can. I know Game of Thrones is tonight, but as soon as you're done with that, yes, Game of Th- Game of Thrones is happening tonight because we are recording on Sunday. And uh, I also needed to get to Shira season two, uh, a, sh- a show that neither of us have seen season two yet, but. We're both big fans of, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay, Season one yeah. is an absolute delight. So, yeah, yes, I can't wait to watch the new one. I, I've been waiting to because I know that I'm going to watch it. It's going to go by very quickly. And I, I want to save every moment. she is one of my favorite animated shows. So a lot of great animated shows coming out right now. So that's good. Oh, yeah. Yep. All right. Let's finish out the show with one last review for Knock Down the House. And we both saw this one. This is a new documentary from Rachel Lears. It is about the primary political campaigns, another political film. I just Mm -hmm. didn't even catch that. Um, Surrounding mainly Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but also Amy Villela, Cori Bush, and Paula Jean Swearingen. These were four very progressive Democrats who primaried their very establishment opponents during the 2018 midterms. Uh, This film had a very quick turnaround, though, because obviously the midterms happened. The primaries were last spring. They were a year ago. And this premiered at Sundance. And I had two opportunities to see it. I had two tickets to see Knock Down the House actually go to the events. Uh, I think the, the one in San Francisco uh, AOC actually was there and I had to miss both. And so I'm, I'm a very, I'm very terrible at my job. So that's what that means. And, but I did finally get to see this uh, a few days ago on Netflix. It's out now. Our staff writer, Julia Tatey wrote uh, a review for knock down the house. It's wonderful. She, she really dug this film and had a lot of really great things to say about it. And now we are. So Abiel Chessy, uh, another documentary about, uh, politics. I, I feel like we've gotten a lot of them l- lately for obvious reasons. And of course, another political film in this episode. Uh, what did you think of Knock Down the House? 
Um, I I really enjoyed it. I think it is um, it's a really empowering movie. I think um, I I haven't read a ton about the filmmaking process, but I imagine that um, that there was a lot done in in post after AOC had won her her primary and then the election because it really is kind of the Alexandria Ocasio Cortez show. Um, yeah, with supporting roles from the three other women who were also running but did not win their primaries um and i think in in that sense in the the areas that focus on her it i've i've said this a few different places but i feel like it's kind of her dreams from my father moment um like when she eventually runs for the presidency like this is going to be the text that people look at to say this is what she was like um that would be a first so yeah (laughs) um and i I think she could do it so uh it's i I really appreciate that the documentary um, makes the effort to show these women as normal everyday women, as just like the the things that they do day in, day out, their relationships with the people around them. Um, it's obviously, again, most impressive in the case of AOC because she's such a public figure at this moment. Um, but just to see that her boyfriend just looks like a normal dude or like just to watch her go and put up flyers and to knock on doors and then go to her job at a bar. Yeah. Um, and like, it's only, not even again, a thing. We should stress this was only a year ago. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I love that. I think that it's, it's so crazy how rapidly things happen in the political world because now she's, you know, love her or hate her. She is, I love her. She is a very, very influential figure among not just progressives at this point, but also a lot of centrist Democrats are also, you know, starting to become like more, I don't know. I don't know. You're starting to see her become more of a presence, I guess, in Democrat, the Democrat universe. And I I think that that's unbelievable because a year ago you see in this documentary, she's, you know, she's at a bar. She's, she had like a very normal job. And so it, it is fascinating to see that. I think a criticism that I would lobby at it. Wow. Why does this keep happening? That I would lobby at it. Really? <laughs> is that, uh, I, yeah, I, I did not get the sense that this was a complete film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that it has a thesis statement at the beginning, like, okay, this is a documentary about four women and it really drops that thesis statement throughout. It, it really mm-hmm. is more about, Cortez, because that is the more positive story. I think that they have sort of said in the interim of this release that, well, we had a lot of footage for AOC and it's fortunate they did apparently because they didn't know, like, and you can tell that they didn't know that she was going to become such a well-known political figure. So I I do think it's fascinating to see how this, this, this footage turned out. It makes you wonder, okay, well, did they just not have that much material for these other women? Or is this like you were saying, very intentional in the way that it just it wanted you to focus on the person who won. Yeah, I I I don't believe that. I think they probably had um they they probably had a significant amount of footage for everybody and probably mm-hmm. went back and chose some stuff. Um which I I get completely if that's how you want to market your film. But yeah, I I I think it does risk becoming propaganda after a certain point. Um I think the uh, the skeptic in me also is is drawn to the fact that they are highlighting the work of two specific organizations. So it's not just um, the story of these women running for office. It's the story of these organizations that are helping them run. Um, and while that's important, I feel like it also could be used as an advertisement for them. Um, so it's I think it's doing some good work, but it it toes the line in a few places that I feel like are less than objective. 
Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up because we should mention that the film was not made by Justice Democrats. And if it had been, and if it had gotten a significant amount of money from them, uh, that would that would be worth raising. Of like, okay, well, you need to be transparent about things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Justice Democrats, of course, was very involved in like actually, you know, propping up these women, of course, because they were the ones they who endorsed these women, and that's kind of the common the connection between all four of them. Uh, but actually, the production of this film we should mention. So Rachel Lears, uh, she went out of her way, like she reached out to organizations like justice democrats but also brand new congress and i quote to find charismatic female candidates who weren't career politicians but had become newly galvanized to represent their communities this of course was in the wake of the donald trump election in 2016 so that's really the impetus for this film and we should also mention that uh, i think a lot of the budget for this was raised through kickstarter so there are some things that I wish films like this would be slightly more transparent about. And you can, you could definitely lob, lob this at this film for maybe not being a hundred percent. Like you have to look this stuff up basically. And, and you, you're sort of left to wonder like, my gosh, is this really just propaganda? Like wait, who's, who wants me to believe all these things or who's trying to tell me all these things I, that didn't really bog me down for the film. Uh, not, not really just because my, my politics tend to align with a lot of the, these women, necessarily not everything, but, you know, definitely important things. And definitely like the message of like government should be in the hands of the people, I think is universal, uh, no matter what party you belong to. The, the idea of if somebody has a lot of power, even if they're in your party, uh, I think that it's very healthy for a political system for, for people to challenge that establishment and to to come up and and basically be like, hey, you know, and call them out for for what they're not great at. They they may not be terrible, horrible people. You know, you're in the same party and you're on the same team, quote unquote. But at the same time, you know, it, it is like I said, so healthy for primaries to happen and for people to try because there's a quote in this movie of like, for every hundred people who try and lose, there, there's one person who will win, and that can definitely have great effects. I can have a good, a good effect. You can have bad effects too, of course, but you know, when good things happen, that that's definitely worth celebrating. So knock down the house. I, I like this one, Abby, what was your, what was your final grade on it though? Um, I think I'd give it a B minus. Yeah. I I'm between a B minus and a B just because yeah, it, it really does kind of fall apart a little bit when you're like, what, when you find out what happens with all the women and you're like, well, I want to feel something, but I just, mm-hmm. I don't know them enough and i know so much aoc but i will give this movie credit when aoc has her moment of like it doesn't it's no longer this like pipe dream that that really hit me <laughs> like mm-hmm. i i really enjoyed that so i'm i'm gonna bump it right on the very very low b for me very close to a b minus but i mean if film can make me cry it's it's got to get something it's got to get a couple points for that so fair um, enough yeah yeah and i i will say um uh, one of my one of my comments too, because like, like I said, so Julia Tatey wrote the review for this, and uh, so she saw it before I did. And when I saw it, you know, I, I followed up with her, and I was like, <laughs> I think the exact thing I said to her was like, either make an AOC movie or don't, <laughs> like mm-hmm. they, they just just do that. And and I do actually wonder, was like, would this have been a little bit stronger if it had narrowed the focus, or would it be weaker because it didn't have enough other, you know, if it didn't have the stakes of these other women running. So that's something that I'm kind of conflicted about. Do, do you have a stance or? I think that's a, that's a good question to ask. Um, I, I don't know that I definitively come down one way or the other myself. Um, I, I do think that having, having those stakes in there does help the movie. Um, but mm-hmm. now that we actually know the outcome, I feel like it, 
it would have been just as fine if you'd made a movie only about her. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So that's about a B minus B average for us. Uh, a lot of great movies though on the show this week. Thank you so much again, Abby, for, for coming on and filling in. Uh, always fun to talk with you on the show and, and pick your brain about romantic comedies, comedies, and very political things. I think there was a nice little through line for all of these these films this week. There was. It was a great bookend. I appreciated that. All right. Next week, we are going to be talking about Detective Pikachu, which you, I believe, are watching tomorrow, correct? Yes, I'm seeing it tomorrow night, and I am very, very excited. Um, this was, if you'd asked me at the end of last year or beginning of this year, if it was on my most anticipated list, I would have said it ironically. But now, like, <laughs> that's out the window. I am genuinely excited for this movie. I like how you honestly were like, oh, I wouldn't have said, no, you would have said it, but it would have been ironic. That's great. Uh, <laughs> if you want to follow along with Abby Slots on that film and all of her stuff in general, please follow her on Twitter. Uh, the link to that is in the show notes. But Abby, what is your your Twitter handle? It's at Abby Olchesi. That's A-B-B-Y-O-L-C-E-S-E. Awesome. And of course, yes, the link uh, to her Twitter is, of course, in her is in the show notes. Uh, we might also be talking about Tolkien. Uh, there's also Palms, The Hustle, a lot of other films coming out next week to challenge Endgame, which, uh, again, I mean, this film is looking like it's going to become the highest grossing film of all time. We'll perhaps have an update on that next week. So uh, for now, don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and or Stitcher, anywhere else where you can leave us a review and support the show that way. And if you want to hang out with us on Facebook, Twitter, send us an email, all that stuff, all the links to our social media and our email are in the show notes. And with that, we'll see you again next week from the Internet California. I'm John Agroni. From the Internet Kansas City, I'm Abby Olchesi. See you next time.